This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. The school holidays have arrived in my household, and Let's Make Art, a new podcast sponsor, has been a real smash hit. Their custom art boxes have gone down a treat with not only the little, but the big kids in my house as well. Whether it's a miserable day and you're stuck indoors, or you want to just have a chill day at home, but enjoy the sun outside, there really is a custom art box for you. Anyone can have an art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits and supplies for a variety of different activities. Whether like me, you're a total beginner, an absolute amateur, or you've mastered the arts, the supplies and tutorials in each art box, they are designed to encourage, support and enhance your experience with art. Go to letsmakeart.com and start your next art project today and be sure to use promo code UFO art in the checkout and you will save 20% off your order. That's a huge 20% off. I've posted my special link in the show notes so you can go to zen.ai forward slash UFO art for 20% off. And thank you to Let's Make Art for sponsoring this episode. Did you happen in the last week, Simeon, to catch uh, Gary Nolan on Tucker yeah. Carlson? So that was really interesting because yeah, right. Gary Nolan's a really fascinating character. I mm. spoke to him on the podcast a couple of months ago. He's going to be coming back on in the near yeah. future. And he was happy to sit there and talk about potential injuries related to exposure to UFOs, UAP. Yeah. Do you see in the research you have done and the cases you have researched any similar types of effects from exposure? And you talk about those kind of space-time bubbles or vacuums, whatever it is, people are entering in those quiet spaces. Anything similar to do with Bigfoot, ball lightning, and, and other types of exposure? Yeah, so the Gary Nolan interview. I mean, I love the part, just as an aside, where mm. people have said to him, as they've said to many people in professional levels, don't you think this might hurt your reputation? I mean, I, mean, I, I started listening to the interview this morning, uh, very early this morning, because I just saw it last night. Yeah. Uh, and one of, yeah. So I love his response, uh, Nolan's response. He goes, that is my rep. That is my reputation to go against the grain. That's what I do. It's like, you know, what he's saying is like science isn't a popularity contest. You don't do it to get likes on your Facebook page. You do it to pursue yeah. the truth, make sense of the data and see if you can figure this puzzle out. And he's dealing with these injuries from UFOs, UAPs. We've heard about this. And in Dark Matter Monsters, I mentioned the NICAP study from 67, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, Major Donald Kehoe and Gordon Lore. And they put together about 100 cases of weird effects around UFOs, the ones that we're all used to. But just to read them again, it's so classic. It's so interesting, right? Uh, the, the sense of confusion people have around them, the agitation to animals, the, the types of injuries that they get, burns and so forth. So um, I haven't been actually able to medically examine anyone who's been around Bigfoot, but just talking to these witnesses, uh, I don't know if it's the same types of injuries as UFOs, but there are a physiological effects that in the Bigfoot world is called brain fog. And it's mm -hmm. been attributed to infrasound. Infrasound being those very low uh, vibration sounds that various animals can make. I mean, whales use infrasound, I believe. they uh, Elephants, very low frequencies to that really broadcast out 
to a distance to other members of their species so they can communicate across these long distances. And people feel that Bigfoot uses this type of infrasound to hunt and that they occasionally use it against people too, which might be true. But we do know from the literature around coherent matter and ball lightnings, one type of coherent matter uh, based on my research, that there are serious injuries and even deaths around coherent matter. Uh, people who've participated in cold fusion experiments have had injuries right in their lab. There was one very famous incident from Joseph Papp when he gave a demonstration at Caltech of his uh, one of his uh, devices. I forget what he called it, but it, it was a cold fusion related device based on HHO gas, oxyhydrogen gas, which has a condensed aspect to it. And Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, went up on stage and pulled out the grounding wire. The grounding wire was there to channel these charge clusters in a safe way back into the electrical system through the ground, which is what we all have on our equipment. And Feynman thought it was a type of cheating. So he uh, pulled out the ground and Pap was you know, very insistent that he put it, reattach the ground wire. Pap, uh, Feynman refused to do it. And there was an explosion and one person was killed and two were injured, and there was a lawsuit that uh, against Feynman for doing that. So that's just one early example we know, just even from the 60s, where there were injuries around this type of matter. Now, we're talking about an entirely electromagnetic effect there, even though an explosion, it's not like we're not talking about gasoline explosion there, Andy. We're talking yeah. about an electromagnetic object decohering in an unstable way. Well, if you look into the literature about ball lightning, there are occasional injuries to animals, to people. They can explode. Um, they can do all sorts of things. And they can leave, uh, in the Lakatsky book, there's an example of these orbs uh, of uh, a father and a daughter, he mentions, driving through the Northwest. Yeah. yeah, and then the daughter sees these blue orbs come in from the right, and, go, and this person sustained injuries from that. Now, I can't prove sitting right here and from the book that that wasn't something else, but that is consistent with charge clusters, exotic vacuum objects and ball lightning that they have unpredictable effects when we encounter them. It's admittedly a rare phenomena phenomenon. I haven't encountered it myself. Uh, well, actually I have in uh, around Knapp Hill in 98, I was with a fellow looking down at a crop circle in uh the East field, it's a huge field where circles have shown up. And I did see a small orb. He saw it too. So I knew I wasn't just making this up. Yeah. He saw a small orb off to the right. Just lasted for a few seconds. Typical of ball lightning. Uh, it looked like it was sort of getting fed energy from the ground, the way it was modulating. I did see that. Um, but these can have unpredictable effects. And so I would say that perhaps some of the injuries that Nolan is looking at are not just due to exotic technologies from advanced craft, you know, certain electromagnetic frequencies or even, uh, you know, ultraviolet bluish light that can cause burns. I, it seems like what Nolan was talking about there are more severe than just injuries because one of the witnesses I interviewed, uh, Gary, who worked at Minot Air Force Base, in the 70s. And I've talked about this before, and I have his videos on my YouTube channel. I mean, he talked about him and his buddy in the security alert truck were burned by this UFO that they see uh, 
near a silo. They're sent out to, to find out why the alarms keep going off. And he said, I mean, it was so bright, you couldn't even discern a shape as it vertically took off by the silo. And they were burned. The whole side of the, the Jeep was discolored. He said even their mm. rifles, their M16s were discolored on the right side. And I think, uh, was it uh, Jim Penniston who suffered the same injuries at Rendlesham Forest? Or John Burroughs. John, excuse me, John Burroughs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's this is part of these phenomena. And whether they're exactly the same remains to be seen. But it's, it, it's part and parcel of this territory is that many times these types of uh, objects uh, and even creatures are not harmful in the least. Even ball lightning can just evaporate. Nothing happens. But there's cases where it also can be quite... Uh, there's a lot of energy there. It can explode. It can discharge electricity. And it seems to me, uh, Andy, that a lot of what they saw at Skinwalker Ranch, maybe even are seeing right now, it's not any different than what we saw around ball lightning. Now, it may not be exactly the same thing because it's not coming from, you know, thunderstorms which generate ball lightning. It seems to be hmm. coming out of the ground or just associated with the area. But the symptoms are so similar from the destructive effects of coherent matter ball lightning that I just have to think it's the same sort of thing. In other words, it's not necessarily an entity intentionally hurting people and livestock, the incidents with the cows and so forth, the cattle. It's not necessarily an intelligent entity using these energies to injure people. What I'm just saying is the ball lightning does this on its own and it's so exquisitely sensitive if you read books about ball lightning, like this book uh, by Russian researcher Bichkov et al., very extensive treatment of the history of ball lightning goes back to you know, these people have looked, people of researchers have looked at all these studies, all the injuries around it. It's very similar to what they're talking about. So unless you know we can show it's an entirely different phenomenon that's intentionally doing something, to people, I would have to say that these. Ball lightning is so sensitive to its environment. It actually looks like it's following you. It's following your electrostatic signature. And I'll tell you one more thing about this, Andy. When we were out in the crop circles for, you know, about two decades, I started looking at them in 97. Mm -hmm. uh, we would find our static meter would be extremely sensitive to the shape of the crop circle. In other words, the electrostatic charge was really affected by the shape and the distance of the ground. So it just seems to me that makes sense that ball lightning also can be, if I could measure it with a meter, it's not surprising that this type of matter would also follow, you know, its way through open windows and doors as people see it leave, go down the aisles of aircraft. It's not because I don't think it's because it's intelligent and it's following its way down the aisle like we're walking. It's following that electrostatic gradient. So when I hear this happening at Skinwalker Ranch, and I'm happy to be proved wrong, but when I hear this happening at Skinwalker Ranch, following animals around, um, and doing things, it could be the same thing. It's just following gradients. That doesn't mean that there aren't life forms that are also tapping into it at the same time. I'm not trying to explain it all the way. I'm just trying to say we shouldn't assume that there's an entity there that's doing this. That's what about, no, that, that's totally fair. And it's good to look at both sides of it. But yeah. what about the potential that the ball lightning itself is some sort of life form? Or, you know, could it be like a hint at a plasma-based life form? Well, I don't think we can ever rule that out. Um, that would be very interesting to discover that. And it's something that I've thought about a lot is 
does some sort of intelligence, has it tapped into the ball lightning in a way that it can direct it in a certain way? It's an open question. Uh, but the ball lightning itself forms anytime you get really co compressed uh, coherent matter. Ma coherent meaning, same frequency, same temperature. The electrons will become one big electron. The electrons, if that's what we're dealing with here, the charge cluster will com compress. And there is a researcher who worked with Hal Putoff named Ken Kenneth uh, Radford Shoulders, who worked at SRI, uh, even back in the early RV program, who was a real pioneer in microelectronics. And he... Uh, he passed away, I'm sorry to say, from injuries due to his research in compressed condensed matter because it mm -hmm. can create radiation and so forth. But Kenneth Shoulders did a lot of research in this area and others. And I think they've shown us Matsumoto, um, Alexander Parkamov in the USSR and now Russia. He, uh, they've shown that when you get really compressed matter, these electromagnetic forces uh, overwhelm gravity and are the predominant force. And they literally compress particles, subatomic particles together that there's transmutation. The particles lose their identity, what they had before and become like one big coherent particle. In the case of ball lightning, one big coherent, uh, you know, one electron, a huge, a macro electron, you know, mm -hmm. the same sort of thing before they come apart again. And so, to, you know, to answer your question, I'm not sure it necessarily needs, it's a good question, and I'm not resolved on this one way or another. I'm not sure it needs intelligence to do what it does, but that doesn't mean that types of life haven't tapped into it, because there's a saying from the Miwok Indians of the Yosemite Valley in California. Their saying is, wherever a Bigfoot walks, a lantern follows. Wherever a Bigfoot walks, a lantern follows. And that means that there's an association between an organic type of life and this ball lightning, these orbs. In yeah. the book, you mentioned that ball lightning tends to be relatively small in size, where you also talk about many UFO reports. They'll talk about objects the size of, of football fields, huge yeah. craft. Do you think that leans towards ruling out a correlation between UFO sightings and ball lightning being confused for each other? Or is it just a different part of the puzzle to solve? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, UFOs seem a lot bigger than you ever see from ball lightning. Ball lightning averages, you know, maybe a few feet across. It can be smaller. And in the case of the cold fusion, it can be micro ball lightning. People have seen these little ball light, Matsumoto, especially. Uh, this is how they kind of saw there was a connection. In their cold fusion experiments under scanning electron microscopes, they saw little ball lightnings moving around and on the surfaces of palladium metals over. But Certainly, there's a point at which it's not going to be ball lightning anymore. I think I don't know what the limit to the size is, 10 meters, something like that. And again, it's a good question for investigation. I don't totally know the answer. Are these UFOs, UAPs, are they generating something like that type of coherent matter that we recognize as ball lightning? Certainly, there's got to be a difference. And certainly, when you get to a certain size... But in the NICAP report from Gordon and Laura, they talk about these orbs and balls of light. And uh, going back to John Ramirez, you know, the former CIA miss, uh, signals analyst who made the podcast circuit not too long ago. I don't know if you had him on this show, but he John was... Ramirez, yeah, a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he, he talked about this and he said that the, I mean, he's talking about this quite openly. He said that he believed 
that these orbs, which they could see coming into the atmosphere through the keyhole satellites, you know, highly classified satellite system, which Ramirez told us we could look up in Wikipedia and get mm -hmm. a lot of the basic, which I did. Uh, you know, they enter service, I believe, in the early 70s. Uh, so he said these keyhole satellites were picking up in the infrared range, these orbs coming into the Earth's atmosphere and being interested in uh, nuclear test sites and related facilities. Um, he said that they saw these over the Soviet Union. They initially thought that these might be some sort of Soviet counter defensive measures you maybe you've heard remember him saying this right mm -hmm. yes yeah yeah well well the real interesting thing about it is he said that they concluded that these orbs were a type of ufo that in other words we think of ufos as solid objects right in a large sense right like a metallic craft or something. i know jacques valet has tried to push us away said look they're not little guys getting in their metal craft coming from other planets but ramirez is suggesting i mean i think he's pretty saying it pretty explicitly here uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that these orbs and UFOs are the same phenomena. So in that case, these orbs would be sort of a different state uh, of matter of these UFOs. And he even went as far as describing them as dark plasmas. Do you remember him saying that dark plasma? Yeah. So uh, that gets into the era we know of coherent matter having an invisible form, a uh, sort of a a dark form, a dark, uh, people, some people call it black ball lightning. So I guess what I'm suggesting, Andy, is there's a spectrum of phenomena here. And I certainly haven't in my own mind come to a resolution of what is it that's UFO? What is it that's ball lightning? What is it that's orbs? I guess what they're on a spectrum of intelligent control and then something that just seems to be a physics phenomena. But there mm -hmm. seems to be a relationship between them, which is really intriguing, really intriguing. I want to get some listener questions because some of the things that I, I would have jumped in with, people have wanted to ask you, and I'm going to leave that up to them. So uh, let's get to some of these. The first question was from Paul. You answered that earlier on. That was the one you answered on Twitter uh, when you talked about the connection between UFOs and Bigfoot. So thank you, Paul. I wanted to give you a shout out for that one. Simeon brought that one up. Um, Newman always sends in some good questions. Newman asks, how does Simeon rationalize the reported overlap of alien visitations with appearances of entities that seem to come from an afterlife? And he says that uh, Whitley Strieber, uh, for instance, reports that together with his wife, he encountered grey beings as well as what appear to be ghosts of deceased relatives during a contact event. Well, I think we're going to come to the conclusion, whether it's five years from now or a hundred years from now, I don't know how long it's going to take. I think we're surrounded by a lot of different forms of life. Just what we've been taught is just wrong in school. It, we, we're taught in biology classes and science classes that there's this tree of life and somehow we're at the apex of it, right? And it starts with sea life and it kind of singular cellular organisms and ends up with us. And that's it. Mm -hmm. I bet what we recognize as life right now is a tenth of a percent of the life that's around us, even in our own galaxy. I mean, we know just from dark matter alone, the study of dark matter in this, we haven't talked about this yet, Andy, in our conversation so far, is that 99.5% of the matter and energy out there is invisible to our sensory systems and all of our equipment. It can only be detected gravitationally. Even the other type of matter that's similar to us 
is considered non-baryonic, which means it doesn't interact with light. So even in our own universe, we know that we're only seeing like a half a percent. So even if we look at the James Webb telescope images, which are beautiful, and the new ones that are coming back, like that pinwheel galaxy. Yeah. It's just like, wow, if that doesn't make your day, I mean, it's beautiful. Well, that's only a half percent, folks, of everything that's out there. So is it really that far-fetched to think that maybe we're only aware of a half a percent of the types of life that are out there? And not all of it is physical. Some of it is in the energy realm. It's not far afield from relativity theory, general relativity theory, which says E equals MC squared. And what is Einstein telling us there? Is that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. That energy, in, and it's even hard for us to, I mean, just talking about it right now, Andy, doesn't it seem like, well, there's mass, there's physical things, and then there's energy things that are making our conversation possible and lights and stuff. But yeah. Einstein told us, you know, 100 years ago that energy and mass are the same thing. And then quantum mechanics tells us that everything has a frequency in relationship to a constant called Planck's constant, that it's not continuous. Well, again, as Max Tegmark gets into his book, uh, you know, Our Mathematical Universe and Hugh Everett before him in the 50s as a graduate student at Princeton University, the other way to look at that because of Planck's constant is you have all these parallel realities stacked up next to each other at different frequencies. And as much as it is a blow to your ego to think that you're perceiving everything, none of us are. Uh, there was an article in Science Magazine just yesterday I was looking saying that we only, as humans, we only see a very narrow uh, spectrum of the electromagnetic frequencies that are out there. Different animals are all specialized based on where they are in the earth, in the oceans, in the atmosphere of seeing different frequencies. We're just not seeing as much as is out there. So I don't think it's really a stretch to think that there's other life that is just not easily perceptible or may even be in frequency ranges that we don't perceive directly. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. And if that other life had developed a technology which allowed them to change between the frequencies, they can pop in here, and that's why you see them for a split second, for a few minutes, then why they look hazy, grainy, hard to take photographs of, hard to film, and then they go away, and it's that's it. They're just jumping back and forward like a radio station, and, and we don't right. have that ability. Exactly. 
And the, your, the listener's question is, why do we perceive them together? Well, once you start perceiving other frequencies, maybe your just ability to perceive more and more frequencies opens up and you start perceiving the frequencies of spirits and other life forms, uh, whatever you want to call them, ghosts or things like this. Maybe these are versions of us at different frequencies, people that have passed on that we knew, maybe they exist at different, you know, that's bleed through from other realities. I mean, it's not hard to think about it that way. And so for me, you know, getting involved in RV, I've often said that was like a gateway drug because I came into RV as open-minded skeptic. In other words, I was open that it could be real. And I thought maybe it's not real. And I'll take mm -hmm. a class like I did in 96 and we'll see. Well, it worked. Yeah. Turned out it worked. It really worked. And I got results. There's no way this has any conventional explanation. You're describing something you won't see for half an hour. And here you've drawn it already in the page. How? How could that be? It starts opening you up to questioning lots of other things. You start seeing more because you're relying more, less on your senses and more on your intuition. And so that kind of takes you on a pathway to see more and more of what's going on around you. Well, I think it's the same way with people who've had UFO encounters or so forth. I think it kind of opens the aperture. I mean, that's the analogy that Ingo Swan used. We start off, we probably start off with a pretty open aperture, but being socialized in the societies that we grew up in, it's kind of narrowed, become practical adult people and our aperture perception gets kind of shut down. But yep. through training like RV or experiences or maybe even near-death experiences, uh, the aperture opens up and you see more. And you see more of what's really been there the whole time. And same with psychedelics. As I've discussed psychedelics with Dr. Also. Andrew Gallimore before, and he talked yeah. about various different things. And again, gateway drugs, are they're called gateway for a reason because they're opening up that that door to something else. So, But yeah, really interesting. Um Okay, this name, Slarty Bartfast, is really hard to say with a Scottish accent, but I think I got there. Um, Slarty just said, could you tell us more about time slips and time anomalies? Now, that is an entirely fascinating subject in and of itself, but I'm sure it's related to what we're talking about, Andy. And again, yeah. I don't claim to have all the answers. I'm just, we're just looking at the evidence here. I ha I've had friends, I, I have friends who've had these time slip experiences. They literally went into a town, felt that they ate in a restaurant, which when they went back the next day had been shuttered for two decades. And everyone said, that's exactly where we were. And if you read this, Ter Terry Lovelace, ask him about this in his yeah. a sequel book, uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, where he collected 30 of the best stories that were sent to him after the publication of his first mm -hmm. book. He has some time slip type stories in there. And what a time slip is for people that are not really familiar with it, it's where you're at a location and all of a sudden it changes into something could be in the past. It's very common. Yep. Uh, these have happened in London and other places where you're all of a sudden on a street that shouldn't exist anymore. It's lit with gas lights, the stores sure, yep. have all different names. And um, it just changes into a different place. Sometimes it happens to groups of people together and then they all come back. Uh, most of the time they come back. <laughs> if they don't come <laughs> back, I guess we don't see them again. I've talked to people who've had it happen right here in Boulder where they're walking down the street and all of a sudden they're horse-drawn carriages. They're looking at barns and a gravel, dusty road. Then they come back. Um, there was a time slip conference I participated in a couple of years ago uh, where Preston Dennett was one of the presenters. I listened to his time slip stories of people who've encountered UFOs where they've been taken back to their past or seen things that they didn't exist anymore. So um, the time slip phenomena phenomenon is really, I think, uh, quite an interesting feature of this. Now, 
when you talk to people who've been around UFOs and cryptids, this is also part of their experience sometimes where they feel like they've changed space or time suddenly, and then they're back where they are. To me, that suggests that, again, some connection here, right? I don't want to be too rigid about it, explain it all the way, you know, a unified theory of all this. I don't have that, but um, there's obviously a connection or you wouldn't have it happening when people are taking aboard a craft and they're taken into another time on earth. They're shown the future or they're taken back to their past. They see the cars of their friends, real, you know, real specific details that could be verified later that that couldn't be faked. Mm -hmm. They know things about friends that the friends never told anyone about. So does that suggest to us again, this is just one possibility that these parallel realities are all stacked up next to each other. And what we call the past and the future is different places in this matrix. I mean, that's the way Ingo Swan thought about it. That's why he called it the matrix. And we've had that movie that comes out of that idea uh, that what we call time are different frequencies and that perhaps when you reach a certain state or other entities have figured out how to do this, you can move along that space-time continuum so that you've moved into what we call the past or the future, something like that. I think in the last in the last year or so, hearing that in relation to the abduction experience for me makes a lot of sense that people would ask, why, why would your grandfather and then your father and then you and then your children have the, have tabs kept on you by an alien species over 100 years? You know, that's a long time, but maybe for them it's half an hour that they can check your grandfather, your father, then you, then your kids in the space of what is a very, very short period of time, but they're just jumping forward as they go along and they're able to keep tabs on the genetics so that that same length of time isn't the same for them as us. Right. And let, you know, you just reminded me of something I'd like to mention. Uh, people yeah, have please. had those space-time slips around crop circles. Mm. I mentioned the case of Ron Russell being in one of them in Avebury in 94. It was kind of this scorpion, I think scorpion formation kind of scorpion eating its own tail. It kind of looked like that. I think I have the picture. Yeah, the picture's in the book. And uh, Ron has told me this story many times. And I just spoke to someone I happened to run into from this area yesterday who was there at the time. And she confirmed it, uh, that Ron had gone out to his car to get more film or something like that. And he, he encounters people who are speaking an old dialect of English dressed in medieval clothing who seem a lot shorter than we are in the wheat as he's going out to his car, he comes back and feels like he's been gone for maybe half an hour or minimum hour max. Mm -hmm. And the people back in the circle say you were gone for less than five minutes. Something about the shape, the helical pattern of the crop circle is changing the electromagnetic structure. And again, this is in the Soviet uh, research and even research from Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, I believe, Slack, a Freiberger, David Freiberger, uh, about how electromagnetic fields can have different arrangements. Uh, they call it diality rotation, but it changes the structure of space time, exactly what Hal put off is talking about. If we were experiencing that, would we experience one of these space time slips? It's a really yeah. uh, good question. It's really interesting. Yeah, really. Um, Question from Frederick. Frederick asks, what does Simeon think of Bigfoot encounters mentioning psychic powers such as Les Strouds? And also separately, what about genetic manipulations? Could humans or Bigfoot be the product of such? Great questions. 
Really yeah. great. Now, I'm really glad he brought this up. Uh, who was it, David? It was Frederick. Oh, and you know what? I, I could have totally stolen those questions, put them into the interview and claimed them as my own. But those, as with many of the listener questions, deserve to be heard from the listener. Yes, so. no, that's excellent. Because Les Stroud is one of the things I'm listening to Les Stroud. He had a show called Survivor Men Bigfoot. Now, who, for those who don't know who Les Stroud is, he does survival. He's, he's a, a former, I think he did uh, landscape surveying in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. And he... Did all these shows on survive, loves being outdoors. He loves teaching people how to survive and how to set up tarps and how to eat there. It's great stuff, right? It's really a lot of fun going back out mm -hmm. to nature. Can you survive out there with very little uh, man-made things? Well, he encountered hoops and howls and trees falling over that shouldn't be falling over during recording that of Survivor Man. And he even went back and showed us some of the footage where he's out in the water and he says he hears ape-like sounds coming from the woods. And you can see him looking on the camera. He said, that's how he got interested in the Bigfoot dub. So he did Survivor Man Bigfoot. And he experienced some of this telepathy, which the listener is bringing up. Now, let, he experienced this around Portland, even to the extent where he went to see a psychologist later on to see if he was cracking up, hearing voices talking in your head. Well, it turns out that this is an experience that Bigfoot witnesses say they have. Obviously, they don't talk about this to many people, just like Les Stroud probably wanted to see a shrink before he started talking about this. They hear Bigfoot talking in their heads, in their homes. Uh, you listen to Wes Germer's Sasquatch Chronicles. He's over 800 episodes now. Uh, many of them are free. You can listen on YouTube and you can be a member and listen to some of them that are not up on YouTube or on his site that are open to the public. But you hear people talking about this. Uh, episode 841 is an example. The woman, and she's not the only, I've read about this so many times before the people encounter the Sasquatch and they have lots of different names, you know, based on where you are on the planet. Here we call them Bigfoot because of someone who gave it that name in 1958 called them big but they're big prints out of bluff creek but um people hear this before the physical encounter so andy you know dan was in my rv class a couple months ago it was yeah yeah and we had a great time with that group it was really a great class so i'm wondering is this a type of rv it's like a bigfoot and natural rver because there, the communication, and it happens to different types of people, to children. They hear the Bigfoot encouraging them to come outside of the house. And when they tell the adults, they say, do you hear they're talking through the walls? Which happens to, uh, no, they said, no, I can hear them in my head. It's exactly what Les Stroud said. You were asking earlier on about the evidence, the anecdotal evidence. When it all stacks up, you know, these little kids have never talked to Les Stroud and they're saying the same thing. Uh, you hear this from hikers and all sorts of different people that they heard this voice in their head now sometimes it sounds kind of mechanical they say almost computer-like is it being translated by your mind into english or do the bigfoot speak english which we're told that they can do a reasonable job of doing mimicry in the forest to convince you that they are one of your relatives or your dog out there they're very good at imitating any animal or human type speech uh we've heard their talk by the way from Ron Moorhead, who recorded it in the 70s in the High Sierras. It's called the Sierra Sounds. Anyone watching right now, just search for Sierra Sounds. You will hear what the Bigfoot sound like talking back and forth to Ron in his 
hunting structure, which he had set up with a bunch of folks up in the National Forest there, um, or talking to each other, which some people call reverse samurai. It's a type of very fast language. Um, the woman I dedicated the book to, Claire, who had a very yep. kind of violent encounter with some of them at the Sea Otter Reserve near Carmel Heights, south of the town of Carmel in California. A British woman just happened to be there, a translator mm -hmm. for a business meeting, goes out to take pictures of the coast, and the creatures come out and they see her when her camera lens drops or something, which often happens. And the male got very angry. The female Bigfoot were trying to calm the male down, but all she knows is she ended up back at her car. Uh, it charged her and she passed out, uh, yelled. And it did things that other people see. It hit the ground. These are very common things that these Bigfoot do. To Maybe it's a type of territorialism. She described that speech back and forth, back and forth, really rapid. No one's decoded it. Even Scott Nelson, the crypto linguist from the Navy who worked with Ron Moorhead, People have wanted to know it. We know it's a language, but we can't. Nobody knows what exactly they're saying, but they don't just speak their own language. They're apparently very good at mimicking human languages, whatever country they're in uh, passable. But they also have this telepathic ability. And that's what the, the listeners asking about. So they do have this ability to project their thoughts or something, something like that. I can't totally explain it guys into your mind. So, and, uh, People say they often uh, what they hear saying is they want the humans to come out of their trailer or their home and come out and meet for a meeting, whatever that would be. Uh, you can do that if you want. I, I mean, I don't know what I would do in that situation. It's a very persistent type of thought that shows up in your mind. And it's even a type of language. And they say other things, too. And sometimes it's just uh, I'm no threat to you type of uh, mm -hmm. thing in your mind. A variety of things. So what is that? It's a type of, yeah, it's a type of telepathy. It's a type of resonance where there maybe so gets it gets into the second question here. And again, folks, I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of questions and um, it, there do seem to be commonalities between these phenomena. So are we that closely related to them that we have sort of experiences that we have with other people in our lives, family members and stuff where you sort of feel like you get uh, thought transference just because you're on the same wavelength as a partner or a family member or a friend you kind of mm -hmm. get the feeling maybe they call you know that's them before you pick up the phone that type of experience so mm -hmm. are we that closely related are we part of the same tree of life and they uh, are just a different branch or were we genetically modified by extraterrestrials or somebody so that we're we don't have those abilities anymore i mean Again, this is going into speculation. We've all read stories and books about the history of the human species and were we, you know, manipulated by extraterrestrials to become gold miners in the past, you know, Zachariah Sitchin and all that. I don't have the answer to it, but we're similar enough to them that uh, we obviously don't have the amount of hair they have. We don't have the muscular development. People who see them say it's like looking at a cross between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Andre the Giant or an NFL linebacker in fur. I mean, people describe them like being like bodybuilders, not super extreme bodybuilders that take steroids, but, you know, really, really chunky, as wide as a barn door. So we're different from them in many ways, but we're similar enough that we're obviously from go far enough back, we're related to them 
So it's a really good question. We're remodified in some way. You know, Andy, do they have abilities that we had at some point that were genetically modified out of us so that we're not naturally telepathic or we have to take classes to remember how to do that? Yeah. It's a really good question. And I, I don't, I'm not certain of the answer. As you say, I think that the upbringing we have, especially in the Western world, through school and just our society, you lose a lot of what you have as a kid and that innocence and do kids see other things and yeah. can kids see spirits and you know who they play with. You see these videos online of of usually babies sitting playing with something that's not even there. Mm-hmm. So it does does that just go as you kind of pass on through childhood and into puberty and adulthood? And like you say, is it something that you relearn when you're older if you go to a class like yours? Or, well, you know, you read the right books. Or... I, I mentioned in, in Dark Matter Monsters, seeing this PK demonstration in Japan, I went there a number of times to teach RV for a publishing company. And one of the students in the class, a surgeon, said, you have to see this PK practitioner uh, not far from Nagasaki. And uh, we went. I went there twice over two different visits. And this guy could really do PK. We've seen demonstrations of it. We know it's real. I mentioned in the book this case where I heard from someone who had worked in the Defense Department of the U.S. monitoring Soviet PK experiments back in the 70s and and knowing for a fact that it was real. Well, I've seen demonstrations of this bottles being twisted, you know, glass, you know, obviously metal objects being twisted, but things levitating, uh, things uh, floating in the air that ended up in my shirt pocket, a cigarette in one case. There's no way you know, I'm thinking of seeing this thing floating a cigarette above this practitioner's palm, thinking, is it a string? You know, I, I've got a mind like other people. I'm slightly skeptical. Is it a trick? Is there a mind? Well, this, the cigarette comes 15 feet across the room into my pocket. First try, boom, with force. It, it was the real thing. And and I know that Sony had gone to, uh, the, one of the CEOs of Sony was interested in psychic phenomena. He had filmed this guy with their fastest 10,000 a frame second camera, I'm told by the person that was there at the time who took my RV class, he said there were no strings, there were no tricks that they could detect. Even breaking each second down into 10,000 frames, they saw no signs of trickery. Well, does Bigfoot do this? Do they naturally know how to do PK? Because people have reported around them, the Russian researcher Igor Bortsev, who I corresponded with and I talked to him at the conference, he said when these creatures would come around their research van in uh, Russia, former Soviet Union, um, things would start floating around. Is that intentional or is that, again, a space-time sort of effect, a type of Mm -hmm. gravitational collapse? By gravitational collapse, we mean gravity ceasing to exist the way we know it, things staying down. Uh, Alexander Parkhamov in his book, uh, Space Earth Human, reported these sort of phenomena happening in the Soviet Union occasionally where gravity would cease to exist for a few seconds and people would hit the tops of their apartments. Things would float. And he attributed it to small black holes coming into the earth's atmosphere. It's just one possibility. So do these creatures know how to modulate that in some way, create gravitational collapse? Do, are they natural PK masters? It's a reasonable question. Absolutely. Interesting that as well, like you say, some of these, even going back to talking about those those injuries before, one of the debates someone was having online and questioned myself and Michael Masters on Twitter today, they were asking, you know, if these are future humans, why are they coming back and harming us with technology they know would harm us with radiation and burns and cancers? And well, maybe it's not deliberate. Maybe it's a consequence of the technology. 
and it's you know just like, if, like nuclear material sitting on its own isn't trying to harm anyone if you get close enough to it a consequence of that kind of proximity is you may get radiation poisoning sickness burns cancer it just happens and it's not deliberately trying to harmful harm you but it right. is harmful to right. you so yeah, like you say, maybe it's just a consequence of that, that proximity. It's what Gary Nolan pointed out in his interview with Tucker Carlson. Yep. It, it could yeah. be just a consequence of the technology they're using unintentional. You know. Um, and final question from Catherine. Catherine had about five questions in one very quick paragraph. Um, quite a few of them you've answered already. But she says, hey, Simeon, uh, what's with Bigfoot's purported ability to rapidly disappear? Do you Mark. think they're able to travel through portals or potentially dematerialize? Excellent question. Now, even last weekend where I attended this Bigfoot Adventure weekend in Bailey, Colorado, and I'm really glad we're doing this interview now afterwards, you know, the people talked about this experience, people who've seen it, and we heard stories, reports of this similar uh, types of phenomena. Um, I mean, one story I heard from one of the weekend organizers jim myers said of the sasquatch outpost which is sort of what was my introduction to this whole topic a number of years ago when i went to the museum in Bill. Mm -hmm. he mentioned a uh, group of hunters from pennsylvania hearing something coming towards and they told this to him in the store when they said we never told this to anyone but something coming at them louder and louder they have firearms with flashlights attached you know to their firearms they at some point they all raise their firearms with the flashlight with the intention of seeing what's running at them because they're getting really scared and there's nothing there but a blue mist. Mm -hmm. Other people report just what the listener is saying. It's literally there one second and it's poof, it's gone. I remember hearing about a case like this from Igor Bortsev at the conference a couple of years ago in Bailey, uh, 2021, just last year. And he talked about a case in a garden somewhere in Russia. This woman sees a Bigfoot walking towards her. And then she says like a curtain of light came down and it was just gone. And this has been reported a number of times. Sometimes people hear them walking around them in the woods or pacing them on the side perfectly as they take a step. They hear crunching sticks and leaves and it stops. But there's nothing there they can see, but they can see the ground getting pressed down. So again, this is exactly what Lockheed Martin talks about in their patent for coherent matter waves is invisibility and cloaking. So I'm just wondering, I think, again, it's kind of a reasonable connection to make. Is this a feature of coherent matter? Do the Bigfoot know how to work with this state of matter? I call it in the book, the fifth state of matter. Yeah. So that they can do exactly what our defense contractors are attempting to patent. And it's taken them a while to get approval from the patent office. Cloaking, invisibility. Is it the same, based on the same principles, or is it in something entirely different? But it, it does seem to be a feature, which is, again, another thing that makes it hard to talk about and even to get funding at the Defense Department, if you're an OSAP, to talk about things that can be there one moment. Uh, the dino beaver. <laughs> yeah. You and Dan have laughed about the dino beaver many times on this podcast. Many and, you know, folks have, yep. Yeah, yeah, you know, this creature that looks like a pig, but it's the size of a, a, a beaver, but the, you know, with a stegosaurus, um, you know, plates on its back, mm -hmm. um, a huge beaver. And they go around the side of two of the analysts go around the side of the building, nothing there. 
people have reported this around Bigfoot. I heard more reports about this um, even recently in other parts of the country where people had talked to loggers. I talked to a nurse that had known many, talked to many loggers from who had been doing this their whole lives. And they said, you'll never believe this. And I've never told anyone this, but sometimes we see them come out behind a tree, look at us. They go back behind the tree. When we go there, they're not there. So is this, again, type of life form that can morph, that can cloak? Are they there, but are now invisible? The other thing, uh, Andy, that's come up is that they can use, they can appear like saran wrap, which is you see a shimmer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of causing a shimmering effect. Like you see something's there between you and what's farther away and it can turn into a Bigfoot. People have reported that or vice versa. It's really fascinating. And again, it's one of the features of coherent matter is to be able to change so that light just passes through it. Uh, we, we know about metamaterials, which are materials that modify the wavelength of light because they're smaller than the wavelength of light, you know, at a crystalline level, atomic level. But is this the same thing or is this something entirely different? It's just a really good question. something I think about a lot. Um, Simi, I'm, I'm glad the listeners covered such a breadth of topics on their questions because I've barely scratched the surface of the book. There's there's 14 chapters. There's a whole lot of references in there. And thank you yes. for, for myself and Dan for the acknowledgement at the start as well. That was oh, that yeah. was a nice surprise to read. Uh, that was very nice. Andy, none of us can do this alone. We all rely on each other to expand our sphere of understanding, right? And for instance, on your show here, I hear new things and new ideas from people like John Ramirez, all the other guests you've had, uh, and other podcasts as well that give me information, valuable information that I wouldn't hear anywhere else. So we're, none of us are in a vacuum here. We're all working together and each of us is kind of working in our own way. I'm really ha happy to say this book has been number one in the category of electromagnetism for several days in the running. I mean, the entire physics category of electromagnetism, which is astounding to have a book about these topics in electromagnetism, which means that people outside our field that, you know, yeah. other people are seeing this now at the top of the list and they're wondering why is Bigfoot in electromagnetism? I mean, they must be furious, some of them, but look, it's a, these topics have an electromagnetic component and it's uh, just part and parcel of the whole territory. And it, it deserves to be, I think it deserves to be looked at more closely by regular scientists instead of pushing it away. And this is what we've been saying the whole show and what you're always saying on this podcast. It's time for the stigma to be removed from these topics. Let's take a look at what's going on. Absolutely. What do you want people's takeaway to be from this book? Is there one thing at the end of it you want everyone to go, do you know what? this is something I'm now going to consider? Yeah, that's a very good question, Andy. I think what I'd like people to do is realize they've had experiences with these phenomena that they may have forgotten about or just explained away. Often Bigfoot witnesses, you talk to them and they said, you know, I thought those little tree structures were Boy Scouts in the forest near my home or vacation cottage out there, but I never saw any Boy Scouts, but I thought that's what was making the trees or those growling sounds at night were bears or those weird smells, it was a skunk, or yeah. whatever experience you've had. I think what people need to do is take their experiences more seriously instead of doubting them and worrying about, you know, ridicule being laughed at by neighbors and friends. We all encounter that from time to time, kind of pushback against mm. these topics. 
But I think the takeaway message would be you might have had experience with these phenomena and not known about it. And secondly, we don't know as much as we think we do. It's to really have a healthy sense of curiosity. Doubt about our existing paradigm and curiosity towards what we don't know yet. And to kind of be humbled a little bit. And I think that's the effect of studying these topics myself on, on me, is to realize even if you think you know so much and you've been going to conferences and studying this, you might only know a tiny percentage of the bigger story. And I think that's kind of exciting, isn't it? That there's so much more for us to discover. And that's really what it's all about. Absolutely. And people can discover you and your work at various different places. I'll put all the links in the description sure. to this podcast. But I, I would encourage folks one way to quash that uh, curiosity is pick up a copy of Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning and the Science of Secret Life Forms. It's available on Amazon, of course, in various formats. But again, if you can support your local booksellers or local bookstores, then then please do that as well. But uh, the main thing is pick up a copy, listen to it, read it, Kindle it, whatever you do. Um, but let me know what your thoughts are. Simeon, it's always a pleasure speaking to you and I look forward to having you back on in the near future. Thanks, Andy. We'll talk again soon. If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So, if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot AI slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing baseball.
place for the Portland affair. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should see. Because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be, I think it's you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jay? Consider your heart, consider time, consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life.